Siberia, Chapters 6 and 7 of Memoirs of a Revolutionist by Peter Kropotkin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eileen. Siberia, Chapter 6 All this summer I travelled on the Amur. I went as far as its mouth, or rather its estuary, Nikolaevsk, to join the Governor-General, whom I accompanied in a steamer up the Yusuri. After that, in the autumn, I made a still more interesting journey up the Sungari, to the very heart of Manchuria, as far as Girin, or Kirin, according to the southern pronunciation. Many rivers in Asia are formed by the junction of two equally important streams, so that it is difficult for the geographer to say which of the two is the main one and which is a tributary. The Ingoda and the Onon join to make the Shilka, the Shilka and the Argun join to make the Amur, and the Amur joins up the Sungari to form that mighty stream which flows northeastwards and enters the Pacific in the inhospitable latitudes of the Tartar Strait. Up to the year 1864 the great river of Manchuria remained very little known. All information about it dated from the times of the Jesuits, and that was scanty. Now that a revival in the exploration of Mongolia and Manchuria was going to take place, and the fear of China which had hitherto been entertained in Russia appeared to be exaggerated, all of us younger people pressed upon the Governor-General the necessity of exploring the Sungari. To have next door to the Amur an immense region almost as little known as an African desert seemed to us provoking. Quite unexpectedly, General Korsakov decided that same autumn to send a steamer up the Sungari, under the pretext of carrying some message of friendship to the Governor-General of the Girin province. A Russian consul from Urga had to take the message. A doctor, an astronomer, two topographers and myself, all placed under the command of a Colonel Chernyaev, had to take part in the expedition on board a tiny steamer, Yusuri, which had in tow a barge with coal. Twenty-five soldiers, whose rifles were carefully concealed in the coal, went with us on the barge. All was organized very hurriedly, and there was no accommodation on the small steamer to receive such a numerous company, but we were all full of enthusiasm, and huddled as best we could in the tiny cabins. One of us had to sleep on a table, and when we started we found that there were even no knives and forks for all of us, not to speak of other necessaries. One of us resorted to his penknife at dinner-time, and my Chinese knife with two ivory sticks was a welcome addition to our equipment. It was not an easy task to go up the Sungari. The great river, in its lower parts, where it flows through the same lowlands as the Amur, is very shallow, and, although our steamer had only three feet draught, we often could not find a channel deep enough to pass through. There were days when we advanced but some forty miles, and scraped many times the sandy bottom of the river with our keel. Over and over again a rowing boat was sent out to find the necessary depth. But our young captain had made up his mind that he would reach Girin this summer, and we progressed every day. As we advanced higher and higher up we found the river more and more beautiful, and more and more easy for navigation, and when we had passed the sandy deserts at its junction with its sister river, the Noni, navigation became easy and pleasant. In a few weeks we reached the capital of this province of Manchuria. An excellent map of the river was made by the topographers. There was no time, unfortunately, to spare, and so we very seldom landed in any village or town. 
The villages are few and rare along the banks of the river, and in its lower parts we found only lowlands, which are inundated every year. Higher up we sailed for a hundred miles amid sand dunes. It was only when we reached the upper Sungari and began to approach Girin that we found a dense population. If our aim had been to establish friendly relations with Manchuria, and not simply to learn what the Sungari is, our expedition ought to have been considered a dead failure. The Manchurian authorities had it fresh in their memories how, eight years before, the visit of Muravyov ended in the annexation of the Amur and the Usuri, and they could not but look with suspicion on these new and uncalled-for visitors. The twenty-five rifles concealed in the coal, which had been duly reported to the Chinese authorities before we left, still more provoked their suspicions, and when our steamer cast her anchor in front of the populous city of Girin, we found all its merchants armed with rusty swords, unearthed from some old arsenal. We were not prevented, however, from walking in the streets, but all shops were closed as soon as we landed, and the merchants were not allowed to sell anything. Some provisions were sent on board the steamer, as a gift, but no money was taken in return. The autumn was rapidly coming to its end, the frosts begun already, and we had to hurry back, as we could not winter on the Sungari. In short, we saw Kirin, but spoke to none but the couple of interpreters who came every morning on board our steamer. Our aim, however, was fulfilled. We had ascertained that the river is navigable, and a detailed map of it was made, from its mouth to Girin, with the aid of which we were able to steam on our return journey at full speed without any accident. Our steamer only once touched the ground. But the Girin authorities, desirous above all that we should not be compelled to winter on the river, sent us two hundred Chinese, who aided us in getting off the sands. When I jumped into the water and, also taking a stick, began to sing our river song, Dubinushka, which helps all present to give a sudden push at the same moment, the Chinese enjoyed immensely the fun of it, and after several such pushes the steamer was soon afloat. The most cordial relations were established after this little adventure between ourselves and the Chinese. I mean, of course, the people, who seemed to dislike very much their arrogant Manchurian officials. We called at several Chinese villages peopled with exiles from the Celestial Empire, and we were received in the most cordial way. One evening especially impressed itself on my memory. We came to a small picturesque village as night was already falling. Some of us landed, and I went alone through the village. A thick crowd of a hundred Chinese soon surrounded me, and although I knew not a word of their tongue, and they knew no more of mine, we chatted in the most amicable way by mimicry, and we understood each other. To pat one on the shoulders in sign of friendship is decidedly international language. To offer each other tobacco and to be offered a light is again an international expression of friendship. One thing interested them. Why had I, though young, a beard? They wear none before they are sixty. And when I told them by signs that in case I should have nothing to eat, I might eat it, the joke was transmitted from one to the other through the whole crowd. They roared with laughter, and began to pat me even more caressingly on the shoulders. They took me about, showing me their houses, everyone offered me his pipe, and the whole crowd accompanied me as a friend to the steamer. I must say that there was not one single Boshko, policeman, in that village. 
in other villages our soldiers and the young officers always made friends with the chinese but as soon as a boshko appeared all was spoiled in return one must have seen what faces they used to make at the boshko behind his back they evidently hated these representatives of authority our expedition has since been forgotten the astronomer t h usoltsev and i published reports about it in the memoirs of the siberian geographical society but a few years later a great conflagration at irkutsk destroyed all the copies left of the memoirs as well as the original map of the sungari and it was only last year when the trans-manchurian railway began to be built that russian geographers unearthed our reports and found that the great river had been explored five-and-thirty years ago siberia chapter seven as there was nothing more to be done in the direction of reform i tried to do what seemed to be possible under the existing circumstances only to become convinced of the absolute uselessness of such efforts in my new capacity of attache to the governor-general for cossack affairs i made for instance a most thorough investigation of the economical conditions of the usuri cossacks whose crops used to be lost every year so that the government had every winter to feed them in order to save them from famine when i returned from the usuri with my report i received congratulations on all sides i was promoted i got special rewards all the measures i recommended were accepted and special grants of money were given for aiding the emigration of some and for supplying cattle to others as i had suggested but the practical realization of the measures went into the hands of some old drunkard who would squander the money and pitilessly flog the unfortunate cossacks for the purpose of converting them into good agriculturalists and thus it went on in all directions beginning with the winter palace at st petersburg and ending with the usuri and kamchatka the higher administration of siberia was influenced by excellent intentions and i can only repeat that everything considered it was far better far more enlightened and far more interested in the welfare of the people than the administration of any other province of russia but it was an administration a branch of the tree which had its roots at st petersburg and that was enough to paralyze all its excellent intentions enough to make it interfere with and kill all the beginnings of local life and progress whatever was started for the good of the country by local men was looked at with distrust and was immediately paralyzed by hosts of difficulties which came not so much from the bad intentions of the administrators but simply from the fact that these officials belonged to a pyramidal centralized administration the very fact of their belonging to a government which radiated from a distant capital caused them to look upon everything from the point of view of functionaries of the government who think first of all about what their superiors will say and how this or that will appear in the administrative machinery the interests of the country are a secondary matter gradually i turned my energy more and more toward scientific exploration in eighteen sixty five i explored the western scions where i caught a new glimpse of the structure of the siberian highlands and came upon another important volcanic region on the chinese frontier and finally the year following i undertook a long journey to discover a direct communication between the gold mines of the yakutsk province on the vitim and the olokma and transbaikalia for many years the members of the siberian expedition 
1860-1864, had tried to find such a passage, and had endeavoured to cross the series of very wild, stony parallel ridges which separate these mines from the plains of Transbaikalia. But when, coming from the south, they reached that gloomy mountain region, and saw before them the dreary mountains spreading for hundreds of miles northward, all of these explorers, save one who was killed by the natives, returned southward. It was evident that in order to be successful the expedition had to move from the north to the south, from the dreary unknown wilderness to the warmer and populated regions. It so happened, also, that while I was preparing for the expedition I was shown a map which Atungus had traced with his knife on a piece of bark. This little map, a splendid specimen, by the way, of the usefulness of the geometrical sense in the lowest stages of civilization, and one which would consequently interest A. R. Wallace, so struck me by its seeming truth to nature that I fully trusted to it, and began my journey from the north, following the indications of the map. In company with a young and promising naturalist, Polakov, and a topographer, we went first down the Liena to the northern gold mines. There we equipped the expedition, taking provisions for three months, and started southward. An old Yakut hunter, who twenty years before had once followed the passage indicated in the Tungus map, undertook to act for us as a guide and to cross the mountain region, two hundred and fifty miles wide, following the river valleys and gorges indicated by the Tungus with his knife on the birch-bark map. He really accomplished that astounding feat, although there was no track of any sort to follow, and all the valleys that one saw from the top of a mountain pass, all equally covered with wood, seemed to be absolutely alike to the unpractised eye. This time the passage was found. For three months we wandered in the almost totally uninhabited mountain deserts, and over the marshy plateau, till at last we reached our destination, Chita. I am told that this passage is now of value for bringing cattle from the south to the gold mines. As for me, the journey helped me immensely afterwards in finding the key to the structure of the mountains and plateaus of Siberia. But I am not writing a book of travel, and must stop. The years that I spent in Siberia taught me many lessons which I could hardly have learned elsewhere. I soon realized the absolute impossibility of doing anything really useful for the masses of the people by means of the administrative machinery. With this illusion I parted forever. Then I began to understand not only men and human character, but also the inner springs of the life of human society. The constructive work of the unknown masses, which so seldom finds any mention in books, and the importance of that constructive work in the growth of forms of society, appeared before my eyes in a clear light. To witness, for instance, the ways in which the communities of Duco Borzi, brothers of those who are now settling in Canada, and who found such a hearty support in England and the United States, migrated to the Amu region, to see the immense advantages which they got from their semi-communistic brotherly organization, and to realize what a success their colonization was, amidst all the failures of state colonization, was learning something which cannot be learned from books. Again, to live with natives, to see at work the complex forms of social organization which they have elaborated far away from the influence of any civilization, was, as it were, to store up floods of light which illuminated my subsequent reading.
the part which the unknown masses play in the accomplishment of all important historical events and even in war became evident to me from direct observation and i came to hold ideas similar to those which tolstoy expresses concerning the leaders and the masses in his monumental work war and peace having been brought up in a serf owner's family i entered active life like all young men of my time with a great deal of confidence in the necessity of commanding ordering scolding punishing and the like but when at an early stage i had to manage serious enterprises and to deal with men and when each mistake would lead at once to heavy consequences i began to appreciate the difference between acting on the principle of command and discipline and acting on the principle of common understanding the former works admirably in a military parade but it is worth nothing where real life is concerned and the aim can be achieved only through the severe effort of many converging wills although i did not then formulate my observations in terms borrowed from party struggles i may say now that i lost in siberia whatever faith in state discipline i had cherished before i was prepared to become an anarchist from the age of nineteen to twenty-five i had to work out important schemes of reform to deal with hundreds of men on the amur to prepare and to make risky expeditions with ridiculously small means and so on and if all these things ended more or less successfully i account for it only by the fact that i soon understood that in serious work commanding and discipline are of little avail men of initiative are required everywhere but once the impulse has been given the enterprise must be conducted especially in russia not in military fashion but in a sort of communal way by means of common understanding i wish that all framers of plans of state discipline could pass through the school of real life before they begin to frame their state utopias we should then hear far less than at present of schemes of military and pyramidal organization of society with all that life in siberia became less and less attractive for me although my brother alexander had joined me in eighteen sixty four at irkutsk where he commanded a squadron of cossacks we were happy to be together we read a great deal and discussed all the philosophical scientific and sociological questions of the day but we both longed after intellectual life and there was none in siberia the occasional passage through irkutsk of raphael pumpelli or of adolf bastian the only two men of science who visited our capital during my stay there was quite an event for both of us the scientific and especially the political life of western europe of which we heard through the papers attracted us and the return to russia was the subject to which we continually came back in our conversations finally the insurrection of the polish exiles in eighteen sixty six opened our eyes to the false position we both occupied as officers of the russian army End of Siberia, Chapter 7